Welcome to Tax and Super Australia's podcast, Tax Wrap, where we share developments, news and insights for all tax practitioners and SMSF professionals. If you like what you hear, please rate us on iTunes and share. We'd love to hear back from you, so send questions and comments, even suggestions for guest speakers, to podcast at taxandsuperaustralia.com.au. Welcome listeners to the Tax Wrap Podcast, episode 170. I'm your host, Steve Burnham, and uh, today I very, feel very privileged to bring to you uh, what I consider a special Tax Wrap Podcast, which is where I get to, um, we've got to record a conversation with the Chair of the Tax Practitioners Board, Mr Ian Taylor. Thanks for this, this Ian. Can you tell, tell us a little bit about the TPB? Okay, Steve. Yeah, well, the Tax Practitioners Board was established in 2010 under what's referred to as the TASER, which is the Tax Agent Services Act of 2009. Right. So the TPB brought together what was previously six state-based tax agents boards, and that's uh, now under one national organisation to regulate tax practitioners. So we are separate from the ATO, but we do work closely with the ATO to strengthen the community confidence in the taxation system. Yeah, of course. The overall purpose of the TPB is to protect consumers, and we do this in a number of ways. Firstly, we ensure the tax practitioners, and when I use the term tax practitioner, I'm referring to three categories, that is tax agents, BAS agents, and tax financial advisors. Right. So those uh, tax practitioners have the necessary skills, experience, and personal attributes to be registered as a tax practitioner. Secondly, we assist tax practitioners to comply with their obligations under the TASER, uh, including the Code of Professional Conduct. We provide guidelines and information on relevant matters. We ensure appropriate professional and ethical standards are being met. We follow up on any complaints and referrals that we receive about tax practitioners, and we take action against those entities that are providing tax agent services whilst they are unregistered. Right. Okay. Yeah. Now, I believe the TPB's just had an anniversary. Is that right? You said. Yeah, that's true. We were certainly uh, TPB commenced in March 2010. So we've chalked up uh, just over eight years. Right. Yep. Uh, When we first started, there were just uh, 26,000 registered tax agents. I was going to ask you how many. I've always wondered how many tax practitioners there are. You probably have the figures right there. Well, I do. In fact, yeah. So when we first started, there were only 26,000 in total. There are now over 77,000, so it's been quite significant growth. Yeah, yeah. And the main reason for that is that we have uh, two additional categories other than the tax agents, which I referred to before. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and that's the tax financial advisors, uh, of which we've now got in excess of 19,300. Right. And we've also got 15,500 BAS agents as well. So right, right. all up, 42,000 tax agents, 19,300 uh, TFAs, and 15,500 bus agents, so in excess of 77,000 yeah, in total. That's quite a interestingly, chunk, yeah. interestingly, with the tax agents, yep. 71% of those are individuals, oh, and yeah. therefore we've got 29% which are companies or partnerships. Mm. Uh, of the bus agents, we've got a similar number, 72% of those are individuals, uh, and the numbers also is fairly similar with uh, TFAs, that's 68%. Yeah, yeah. Um, In the category of, uh, or in the case of those tax financial advisors, we're a joint regulator with ASIC. So every one of those tax financial advisors, the 19,500 of them are, in fact, also registered with ASIC. Yeah, because they they are giving advice, therefore it's uh, required, I think. Correct. But who who does need to register as a tax practitioner with the TPB? Okay, so really anyone who provides a tax agent service, a BAS agent service or a tax financial advice service for a fee or other reward must be registered with the board. Yep, yep. 
okay. now these services are defined within the, in the legislation. I won't go into all that uh, detail here now, but yeah, they are yeah. defined. Uh, a fee is uh, is required, and that's uh, considered a payment for the services. It does refer to fee or other reward. So other reward is something which would be given um, or received in return for the service. Oh, so if you've got a client who gives you a uh, uh, a dozen bottles of Grange instead of uh, instead of paying your fee, yep. then that's uh, that's that's a, uh, a re- other reward. Other reward. You'd accept, you'd accept that with thanks. I think I'd go for that one rather than the uh, the money. But anyway, depends that's me. On your, depends on your fee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, now, Ian, you mentioned the Code of Professional Conduct. Could you go over that for us? Okay, no problem. So the TPB is responsible for assuring that tax practitioners comply with the Tax Agent Services Act, and the Act itself includes a code of professional conduct. So the code establishes a set of ethical and professional standards that the registered tax practitioners must meet and continue to meet. The code is set out uh, sets out fourteen principles, uh, fourteen categories, uh, but they're under five separate categories, if you like. And the first of those is honesty and integrity. Second is independence. Thirdly, confidentiality. We've also got uh, a category of competence, and the final one is other responsibilities. All right. Okay. So uh, apart from the code of conduct, um, are there other parts of the the Act of TASA that we need to be aware of when it comes to compliance? Absolutely. Uh, Part four of Mm -hmm. the Tax Agent Services Act requires all practitioners to be a fit and proper person to be registered with the board. Right, okay. And the fit and proper person requirement applies to individual applicants, but it also applies to each individual partner and each individual director in respect of either a partnership or a company application. Okay. So in addition to that, People need to be aware of Part 5 of the Tax Agent Services Act, which outlines the civil penalty provisions that can apply to both registered and unregistered practitioners. So I can give you an example there. Yep. So the civil pre- penalties um, could be imposed on an entity that provides or advertises tax agent services for free when they're not registered. Ah, yeah. And for registered tax practitioners, a civil penalty could be imposed for making false or misleading statements to the Commissioner of Taxation. Right, right. Um, but in that context, I do want to re- acknowledge and uh, and point out that over ninety nine percent of registered tax tax practitioners are doing the right thing. Oh yeah, yep. Um, the TPB does receive complaints or referrals, but they're for le- they're in relation to less than one percent yep. of the uh, of the total population. But they'd be the one percent that advertise on Gumtree or whatever. Well, yeah, <laughs> interesting you say that because we've had um, some examples where services have been advertised on Gumtrees <laughs> and other similar um, apps. Yeah, yeah. I'm surprised people t- uh, answer the ad, but anyway. Um, so how does the TPB approach regulating tax practitioners? Like what's the, what's the compliance strategy? Okay, so as you probably might expect, our compliance strategy is risk-based. Right. Um, as I said at the outset, our you know, TPB exists to protect consumers mm. um, and therefore a risk-based approach to that um, seems logical. So our work and resources are directed where there is the greatest risk to consumers of those tax services that are being provided in perhaps an inappropriate way. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so our risk, risk-based approach is designed to ensure that uh, sanctions reflect the seriousness of the breaches um, and any unnecessary impact uh, in respect of consumers is avoided. Uh, where responsible tax practitioners seek to comply with the code and other obligations. Right, right. So our aim is to help responsible tax practitioners comply with the code and uh, other legislative requirements, but at the same time, we want to take firm action against those who do not comply with their requirements. Okay. 
So we also aim to identify and take steps to address those unregistered practitioners I referred to before. Yep. Uh, and our approach to compliance is guided by the following principles. So we want to help people understand their obligations under the uh, TASER and under the code. Uh, most tax practitioners want to comply, and we focus our efforts on helping those. And as I said before, that's the majority of people. Yeah, yeah. We identify any undesirable tax practitioner behaviours and address them through uh, education, uh, and particularly in relation to their ongoing registration obligations. Right. We respond appropriately to all complaints and referrals that we receive, and we undertake inquiries and investigation in a timely manner. We do get uh, up to 1,600 complaints a year, so it's not, uh, it's not insignificant no, not in terms of the number of uh, complaints, and we have to investigate all of those and take action in respect of each of those. Yeah. yeah. So we exercise sound judgment and use available powers under the TASER, and I'd also point out that uh, the people that might will be making the decisions in respect of these uh, cases that come before the board are, in fact, all practitioners as well. So all the board members, one way or another, we're all part-time, but we're also all practitioners. So oh, yeah, yeah. Um, that means we've got practitioners making judgments in relation to practitioners. So you know what's going on and you know the game. We yeah, know what's yeah. going on. We're not public servants. No, no. Not public servants sitting in judgment of others. We're oh, practitioners yeah. sitting in judgment of practitioners, and I think that's a good space to be in. It is. It's a good thing to know, too. Mm. So, so what do you do? What does the TPB do when it finds out that a tax practitioner may be doing the wrong thing? Okay, well, there's a number of different ways we can uh, um, find out yep. about a particular behaviour, and I'll perhaps come to that in a minute or two. Yep. But firstly, we review the complaint or the referral to identify the issue. Uh, we then make some preliminary inquiries, such as contacting the complainant to clarify the details or to collect additional information. Rarely do we get a complaint that comes in with everything we need to proceed, so we do usually have to go back and seek additional information. Oh, so the next thing we do, having established that there is a case, it looks like there's a case to answer, we contact the practitioner to let them know that we have a complaint on hand and we seek their input. So this is often through what we'll refer to as a please explain letter. Hmm. Um, right. So once we've determined that there is an issue that the TPB can deal with, uh, then we may commence an investigation. That is, if we can't solve the problem beforehand, we'll go to investigation. Now, it, once it's, it's important to note that if we commence an investigation, this makes it a formal process um, and uh, it gives us authority to deal with... Uh, with certain things in a different way once we've commenced an investigation. Right. There are some things we won't get involved in. So, um, for example, if it's a, a fee dispute, uh, then then we say that's a commercial matter between the client and the practitioner. Oh, yeah. And uh, it's not something that we get involved in. Uh, they can re they can work that out through a fair trading agency, consumer affairs or whatever. It's not something that we're, we're no, interested no. in. Yep. Um, so the other thing, of course, we can't award any monetary compensation to a client for any loss that they might suffer. Mm. Uh, but, of course, we do require, and it's, it's also a code item, is that under the code, practitioners must have continuing profession, uh, must have um, oh, pers pro uh, professional indemnity insurance, yeah, indemnity, yeah, which yeah. is designed to compensate clients for any loss they may suffer. Yeah, yeah. But the board itself can't award any monetary compensation to a client of a practitioner. We I can see. only sanction the practitioner itself. Yeah, yeah. Um, so once we commence the investigation, we have to notify the practitioner concerned that we've commenced the investigation, and we also have to complete our investigations within a period of six months. So the legislation requires that we oh. complete within six months of okay. commencement. Yep. 
Um, and it does give us an ability to uh, to get additional information by way of uh, um, asking people to appear before the board and give evidence. Uh, it also allows us to uh, collect evidence from uh, from other parties. So, for example, from banks or from uh, um, mobile phone providers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we've got search powers and we've got abilities to uh, access information once we've commenced an investigation. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It, can you tell me where do you, where do complaints come from? Is it from the public or from other practitioners? Okay. Well, uh, yeah, absolutely. It comes from the public. It comes from other practitioners. It does. And it comes it? from agencies like ASIC and the ATO. Ah. Right. Um, so look, in 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 essence, I guess uh, I mentioned sixteen hundred complaints per annum. Roughly, roughly. Between 1,000 and 1,100 of those come from the public, so 60 70% come from yeah. the public at large. Okay. That is clients of the practitioners. Yep. Um, other practitioners are, are also quite a significant. A couple of hundred come from other practitioners. So this is a circumstance where a practitioner takes on a new client uh, to them, a new-to-them client, and that client happens to be the client of a previous practitioner. The new practitioner picks up the work, looks at it and says, what the hell's going on here? <laughs> oh, this wow. looks incompetent yep. and refers it to us. Oh, gosh. Right? Yeah, okay. so, so we do get quite a large number and we encourage practitioners where they see that sort of um, sort of scenario yep. to let us know about it because we can uh, we can take it up. Because well, otherwise it'll keep happening. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and the other thing we do, we get a lot of um, referrals from ASIC and that's usually where ASIC... Uh, introduces uh, a banning order, for example, or an oh. enforceable undertaking. Yep. Um, but that, again, is also in the case of uh, tax finance advisors. But we also get a lot of referrals from the ATO. So um, those referrals from the ATO are generally in respect of tax agents and BAS agents who, yep. in the ATO's eyes, have done the wrong thing. Right. So that could be um, simply as, uh, you know, the, the practitioner has overclaimed significantly in relation to the hot topic of the moment, work-related deductions. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, it could be um, that uh, that there's fraud involved, that there could be false statements uh, to the commissioner. A whole raft of things uh, come from the ATO. Yeah, um, yeah. And so we do get about a couple of hundred referrals from the ATO each year, um, and they can result from, uh, as a result of ATO having conducted an audit in the first instance, perhaps on a client of a practitioner, yeah. and then extending that to other clients of the practitioner, okay. seeing that there's a, um, a long-term issue there in terms of the way in which the practitioner is behaving, the ATO would then refer the matter to the TPB. Yeah, you know, I've heard stories about, like, say, the travel allowance rorts being more or less fed by a practitioner but uh, absolutely and I mean happen. in the current climate uh, you know your members will be uh, will be aware of the fact that the Commissioner of Taxation has um, you know made a fair bit of uh, noise about overclaiming of work-related deductions yep, yep, and indeed yep. the ATO have identified that for this financial or this this tax year if you like the the year ended 30 June 18 yep. which uh, you know returns will start coming in in the, in the uh, very next few uh, weeks, etc., that the ATO is focusing specifically on uh, work-related expenses and is focusing not only on self-lodges, but it's focusing on those returns that are prepared by agents as well. That's right. There was that um, Chris Jordan speech a little while ago about tax practitioner prepared returns aren't necessarily the best, which um, I don't don't know, I'll take issue with that. But um, It was earlier this year in the Tax Institute conference up in um, Cairns that Mm. he made those statements. (laughs) Now, you mentioned the ADO, but also ASIC. What sort of behaviours does ASIC bring to your attention? Um, Well, with ASIC, we get get notification from ASIC of uh, 
any compliance action they take against registered tax financial advisors. Oh, so, so it's more that category. Registered or... financial advisors, I should say. That oh, yeah. ASIC doesn't deal with them from a tax perspective. But no. it's usually ASIC, uh, the, the person's either going to be an AFSL, um, that's a licence holder, or alternatively they're going to be an authorised rep or an employee rep yep. of a licence holder. ASIC will have uh, had a referral to them uh, and ASIC will take action. Uh, most commonly, I guess, ASIC's uh, response is to uh, apply a banning order, which simply means that they can't practice for a period of time. And ASIC can, in fact, hand out a lifetime banning order. Mm, um, yeah. So when there is a banning order, ASIC tells us, and we then look at the uh, practitioner, if they're registered with the board, yep. in all probability, we then terminate their registration with the board right, as well. Yeah. Um, for the same reasons as ASIC have. Right, right. Um, But they're also, uh, ASIC does does have uh, enforceable undertakings, and again, we're privy to those uh, enforceable undertakings if we feel that, uh, that the reason for those enforceable undertakings haven't been entered into yeah. uh, are sufficient for us to take action against the practitioner, okay. and then we, then we will. Yeah, yeah, fair yeah. enough. Now, earlier you said that after you receive a complaint, you make preliminary inquiries. So what does that entail? What's a preliminary inquiry entail? Okay, so um, preliminary inquiry is really that uh, first stage of the process. Uh, so uh, as we indicated, uh, when we get a complaint or a referral, we often have to go back to the, uh, the complainant and ask for additional information. Sometimes we also go, well, if it's the ATO, we might ask the ATO for additional information, et cetera, et cetera. So the first step in it is that in that preliminary inquiry is to get to get and gather additional information, to make inquiries, contacting the person who made the complaint. It also involves um, providing details of the allegations to the tax practitioner concerned yep. and asking the practitioner to give us his or her um, take on, on those particular uh, allegations. Okay. And sometimes you can get nasty clients who are out to uh, cause, oh, yeah, yeah. cause people a problem, yep. cause people an issue. Um, and, uh, you know, the practitioner will tell us about that pretty quickly. Um, but as I said, we're, we are practitioners uh, making judgments in relation to other practitioner behaviour. So, yeah, yeah. you know, we can pretty quickly pick up if a client is being vindictive. If it's a holding um, water or not. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, right. If it's, yeah. got, if it's got legs, we'll, we'll, we'll determine pretty quickly that it has. <laughs> Whether the legs need to be broken or not. <laughs> so after the preliminary stuff, uh, can you give us some detail about the formal investigation stage? Okay, so yeah, after we get past that, um, that preliminary inquiry stage, and we, we do believe that it's something that we can act on, so it's within the the scope of the of the remit of the TPB. Yeah. It's not a fee-related matter, for example. Um, then we will con we'll, then after the preliminary inquiry, we will decide to go to a formal investigation. As I did mention before, once we get to that process, it is a formal process, um, and we have to notify the practitioner that's affected by it. And uh, and as I said, we have to we have to ensure that that. Uh, investigation is then completed within six months mm. um, of the uh, commencement of the formal investigation. Uh, we do have uh, certain powers that we can exercise during that period, and uh, that can be in relation to information, documents and other items, and taking possession of those. Um, and as I said, we can also have a person or require a person to appear before and or give evidence to the board in relation to certain matters. Yeah, yeah, I see. Um, so following the investigation, we'll decide whether there has been a breach of the taser that's occurred or not yep. and what actions that we take. Now, right. all those decisions in relation to... 
sanctions will be determined by what's referred to as the Board Conduct Committee. Yep. Uh, and the Board Conduct Committee comprises a minimum of four board members. Um, now, the reason for that is the Act actually says that uh, any any appellable decision of the board has to be completed by a, a minimum of three members. Right. Uh, we go with four because if there's any conflict of interest, uh, you know, a board member might know um, the practitioner or have had dealings with them in the past, mm, etc. Mm. We ensure that there's no conflict of interest in in board member um, knowing knowing the person, etc., yeah, etc. Yeah. So it's, it's funny you should say that because it's, it's actually a can be a small world, the world of tax practitioners. Yeah, it but, can, uh, and when uh, a number of us as board members have been around for a long time, yeah. so you do come into run into people, and uh, yeah, so yeah. so any decision that's made by the board conduct committee yep. is. Is a decision of a board of the comprising of a minimum of four board members. And as I said before, there are eight board members. All of us are practitioners, one yep. way or another. Okay. Um, and uh, but the, but just a formal process. Um, people have an opportunity to put their case, uh, usually in writing. Many of them will have those uh, positions uh, responses prepared by solicitors oh, yeah. or or barristers, indeed. Um, and uh, so they have that opportunity to uh, to put their case in a formal way as well. Yeah, yeah. And the board considers uh, considers all of the submissions we've received, and finally comes to a decision. Yeah. Yep. So as I said, we got six months to complete the uh, um, the investigation. Once we've made the decision, we've got thirty days to uh, finalise the decision and notify the practitioner. Yeah. Um, and uh, we, where we take action to either terminate or suspend, or suspend or terminate, we have to also notify the Commissioner of Taxation because termination or suspension means that the practitioner doesn't have their continued access to ATO oh, via right. the portal yep. or or, um, or by way of electronic lodgement or, or, or practitioner lodgement, the PLS as yep. it's now called. Okay, yeah, I see. Yep. So, so if a breach of, of the, the Act of TASA is found to have occurred, Yep. What happens? Okay, so when we we so following the investigation, the case goes to the board conduct committee, as I mentioned. The board then considers all the evidence that's provided, um, makes a decision first as to whether or not there is a breach of the TASA, and if there is, we then have to come up with a sanction, um, and uh, so the board. Um, decides, and, the, and obviously the severity of the case determines the nature of the sanction. The least of the sanctions we can apply is a written caution. Um, that you know is often uh, a, a case where there might be just uh, one one misdemeanour, if you like, mm. one uh, one mistake. It's a written caution. Uh, if you like, slap on the wrist, make sure it doesn't happen again, mm. uh, that sort of thing. Is it cumulative? I mean, if it does happen again, does that first yeah, caution bear absolutely. any weight? Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So, you know, we, we're aware of um, previous uh, previous activity by yeah. an agent when we come to those uh, subsequent decisions. So uh, we can also, and we do often, apply a written caution together with an order. Um, and an order is usually for a person to do something or not do something. Yeah. Um, now, so, so for example, the order might be for a person to complete a course of education in relation to trust account management, for example. Right. Uh, an order might be for a person not to receive any client refunds to their trust account. So if there's been a history of a person uh, misappropriating client monies, um, then one way we can stop them doing that is to ensure that there's the client monies go direct to the client rather than to the agent. So oh, we right. could, we could order that the person not receive any monies through through their client trust account. Yeah, um, yeah we could order them to do a course of education, um, and uh, and that's a very common outcome 
in uh, in many circumstances. All right. Now, in the worst cases, I guess then the next step is to either suspend a person or to terminate them. Right. And so in the very worst cases, we will terminate. Uh, unlike ASIC, who is able to impose a lifetime ban on uh, on financial advisors, we're only able to impose a ban of up to five years. I see. So we can terminate an agent and say that uh, the decision is that that person cannot reapply um, for any period we like, up to five years. But oh, the right. maximum so maximum we can say is it's got to be five years before a person can reapply to the board. Yep, yep. Doesn't mean that we accept them again, but they oh, but they've okay. got to they've got they to take reapply. five years to <laughs> before they can reapply again. And is it with corporate entities as well as individuals? Yes, okay. it is. It yep. applies to both. Okay, right. Yeah. right. So so there are other circumstances. So so that's the extent of the sanctions, I suppose. We can apply in certain circumstances the federal court for what's referred to as a pecuniary penalty. Oh. Um, and that penalty is uh, where there is a breach of the taser, and that can be quite um, extensive. Individuals, uh, the penalties can be up to $52,000, $52,500 for each each breach. Right. And for body corporates or companies, partnerships, et cetera, it's $262,000 mm. um, up for each breach. Now, yep. a court would really would rarely apply the full penalty, but, you know, look, we've had a couple of cases uh, well, the most significant case a couple of years back was uh, a practitioner, or sorry, a person not registered with the board providing services whilst unregistered mm. was subject to pecuniary penalty as a result of a case we took to the federal court. And the penalty, combined penalty for the individual and his company was a total of $900,000. So, you know, you think about that, that's quite a very quite a large significant penalty. And we use that information there as a deterrent to others who might think that they can provide services when, when they're unregistered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. of course, yeah, yeah. which is just not on. Yeah. It, it, does, is there a right of review? If a taxpayer doesn't agree with the sanction, is there some kind of comeback for them? Or yeah, there is. And uh, as, I, as I mentioned before, if we make a decision which we refer to as an appellable decision, that has to be a decision made by a minimum of three board members. The appellable decisions are those which are, um, relate to, you know, to uh, imposing an order, termination or suspension or termination, or rejecting a, a renewal application, etc. They're all appellable. They're appellable to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. So a person who is dissatisfied with the decision we've made has the opportunity to have that uh, decision independently reviewed by the Administrative Tri Appeals Tribunal. And yep. the tribunal can, in fact, stand in the shoes of the board and reverse the decision, make an alternative decision, uh, for example. Uh, Over time, uh, since the TPV first came into existence, um, we've had... Uh, in excess of 110, almost 120 cases go to the AAT. Oh, right. And there's only been about three that have been overturned oh, at that, that time. Right? So we've got a pretty yeah. good history That's right. in terms of getting it right. Mm. Um, and uh, But it is the decisions are appellable. Uh, indeed, if the person having appealed to the AAT is still unhappy with the AAT decision, then they can go to the federal court for further review yeah, uh, yeah. in that. And we've had a number of cases where that's happened, where they have gone to the federal court for re further review. Um, of that uh, decision, but but three over what eight years? That's that's three uh, over eight a years to reverse the decisions of the yeah. board. It's pretty good, uh, pretty good it record. Is. You sound like you keep pretty busy with that one percent of. Uh, I mean, because you mentioned earlier that ninety nine percent of registered practitioners do the right thing. Yeah. So you keep pretty busy with the other one percent. Um, I find those statistics interesting about like the uh, the cases that have been overturned and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Have you got any more stats that you can share about the compliance cases? 
Um, yeah, we do. Uh, as we said, 99% of practitioners do the right thing. Yep. It's really only that 1% is, as we said, roughly 1,600 cases per year that come before the board. Um, the majority of those cases, around about 60%, a little over 60%, relate to practitioners failing to respond to requests and directions from the board. So that's an internal thing. Yeah. Um, and that includes failing to complete the annual declaration. So we did put in place a couple of years ago a requirement for practitioners to... Uh, contact the board at least annually with an annual declaration process. It's online, it's quick, it's simple. I did mine a couple of months ago, it took three minutes. Right. Uh, but for some reason, some people think, oh, I'll put it off, I won't do it, etc., etc. Yep. Uh, at the end of the day, if they don't, then, uh, then they're given further opportunities. But ultimately, if they fail to comply, then they're out, we terminate them. Oh, right. So yep. there are a lot in that category. The remainder, remainder of cases... Uh, there's probably about 6% of the cases relate to unregistered service providers, and I've mentioned those previously. Mm, Practitioners mm. not meeting their personal tax obligations. That's an interesting one. Oh, not doing their own tax. Not doing <laughs> their own tax on a timely basis, so yeah. failing to lodge their own income tax returns, but also the income tax returns of entities which they are the they are the controlling mind of. So, oh, for example, right. if they're practising through a, a trust or a partnership or a company um, and they're involved in that entity, then, then the, that personal tax obligation extends to those entities as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or entities of which they're a director. Um, that's right. Trustees, for example. Yep. So not meeting your own personal tax obligations is one that's increasing, and that's come about as a result of the annual deck because we now ask that question in the annual deck. Oh, see if they have any other entities they need to take care of. Well, we ask whether or not they're up to date with their personal their tax own. obligations. Yep. And if yep. they tell us they're not, then we follow up with that. We've checked it out with the ATO, et cetera. Oh, okay. yep. So we can find that information from the ATO. Yeah, yeah. Um, so look, the other case, we get, you know, often in act, not acting in the best interest of clients, um, service not provided competently, sometimes issues around honesty, integrity and uh, some fraud cases that mm. come through. Yep. Um, honesty and integrity often is around uh, situations where I mentioned previously about that order, for example, relating to return of client money. So oh. refund money is being unreasonably withheld by practitioners yep. and not passed on to their clients. There are some cases around the fit and proper issue, which I also mentioned previously as a registration requirement. Yep. Interestingly, that fit and proper issue comes down to um, fit and proper is effectively honesty and integrity, but there are a whole lot of other things that have to be complied with, including that the person's not become bankrupt, hasn't been sentenced to uh, a term of imprisonment for anything, hasn't been convicted of fraud-related charges, hasn't been a promoter of uh, tax avoidance schemes, etc., etc. Yeah, yeah. So all of these things are things that we need to take into account in relation to whether or not a person is fit proper. Yep. Um, and then the final thing just is the eligibility for registration. So we do have a number of cases where a person might have met the uh, registration experience requirement when they were first registered or when they were previously registered, but for one reason or another, at the time they come to renewal, they don't meet that, regist that uh, registration requirement, i.e. eligibility based on experience, yep. and therefore we need to take action in those cases as well. Okay. And, and perhaps CPD, or is it that that's an ongoing thing? That Well, CPD, I, we really haven't at this point in time ever terminated a person because of a lack of um, CPE or CPD. Yep. However, we are about to commence this year for the first time, um, from the 1st of July, where we're commencing CPE audits. Ah, okay. Um, now, we are, in the first instance, targeting 
uh, those practitioners who are not members of a professional association. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, because such, as, such as Tax and Super Australia. Well, yeah, you, you, Tax and Super <laughs> Australia is a recognised association, yeah. so so your members will not be part of our um, first target audience. No. Um, we're targeting those members who are not members of a recognised professional association because no one else is asking them to provide details of their professional and of their um, CPE hours. Yeah. I mean, for me, for example, I'm a member of CPA Australia and I'm a member of CAANZ. Yep. Um, I've been asked on three occasions in the last nine years or whatever to provide details of my CPE. Oh, yeah. And yeah. annually, when I renew with each of those organisations, I've also got to make a declaration of how many hours I've done in the last 12 months. Okay. Yep. So so those bodies are also asking those questions of practitioners. Yep. Um, if they're doing that, we don't need to do it as well. No, no. Um, but so our first target will be those um, practitioners who are not members of a professional association. And indeed, we're probably going to be reasonably... Uh, accommodating in the first instance. Uh, so if we find in order. Yeah. if we find that a person is uh, has not completed the required number of hours in CPE, we're most likely going to give them some additional time to catch up yep. on what's got what they've missed, but also ensure that they continue on a go forward basis that they comply. So we yeah, yeah. we monitor them, and if they you know if they were going to then fail to comply, then we would take stricter action no, in see. that in that category. Yeah. Yep. So, um, just get sorry. Getting back to those compliance cases, what are the, some of the outcomes that can uh, come out of those cases? Um, well, look. In overall, um, although we only had sixteen hundred uh, complaints or thereabouts each year, um, we do have um, you know a number of uh, cases which involve multiple complaints. So, a practitioner might be might be you know in more than one category. So, they might be. Um, failing honesty and integrity. They might be failing in the context of providing a competent service. They yep. might be failing in the context of failing to exercise reasonable care in uh, ascertaining a client's state of affairs and or applying the tax laws correctly. Right? Mm. They might be failing in relation to CPE, uh, PII, and they might be failing in relation to providing the board with an adequate response on a timely basis. All right. Yep. Um, so just overall, I guess uh, roughly 40% of all the cases we deal with, we try to solve those cases with what we refer to as an education outcome. Yep. So we make the practitioner more aware of their circumstances and essentially we're looking for uh, a response from the practitioner that they they acknowledge that they've made a mistake and that they're prepared to take appropriate education action to ensure that that's not going to happen again. I see. Yeah. Um, uh, we do, in fact, find that in a number of cases, the fact that we are the fact that we have an investigation on foot in relation to a practitioner can cause them to surrender their registration. Oh. So they decide it's all too hard. They'll get out um, and they surrender their registration. That has happened, has it? Oh, yeah, regularly. Oh, yep, gee. regularly. Mm. In fact, it was happening so regularly that we had the legislation change. So that if we want, if we if the board considers that the person has uh, potentially breached the code um, and, and wants to surrender, we can we can refuse to su- accept the surrender and continue with the case and terminate the person. Oh, really? Um, and we could do that really? in circumstances where we felt that the, that it was um, obviously at the at the you know the. The worser end of the scale, yeah, whether it's actual fraud or gross yeah. dishonesty, and, all that and we don't want the person simply to avoid a sanction by surrendering their registration. Oh no, no, I see. Yep, yep fair enough. 
Well, okay, and a lot of other cases, yeah, there's, gone, there's yeah. no breach found. Um, and uh, and in other cases, a practitioner changes their behaviour. Some of the cases are outside our jurisdiction, um, e.g. they could have happened, the timing of them could have been prior to the TPB coming into existence, oh, etc. Right, I see. So if you look at last year, for example, I think... Um, uh, or year to date, this year to date, 250 sanctions applied, 157 written cautions, 67 orders, four renewals rejected, and 22 terminations. Oh, there you so go. no suspensions, but no, no. Uh, you know that's that's 250 sanctions applied uh, in those circumstances. Yeah, just just do you feel that though the the number of cases, sanctions, terminations, whatever. Is going up or down, or is it fairly steady? Uh, it's fairly steady. Okay. Uh, over the last probably four years, it's been reasonably steady. Yep. Uh, but that's good, the fact that it is reasonably steady, because, in fact, the population's been growing. So, oh, that's true. You know, yeah, you uh, in some respects, I suppose, <laughs> a bit like the road toll. The road toll's either, <laughs> either steady or going down, yep. and yet the population number of going cars up. on the road's increasing. So we've got the same circumstances. Number of referrals, uh, et cetera, to the board's relatively steady, but the population's growing. So yeah, yep, that's, that's right. probably a good trend. So the population of tax practitioners, uh, of course. You Absolutely mean. growing, so, yeah. I mean, our members, as tax practitioners, what should what should we do if we suspect that a registered tax practitioner is doing the wrong thing? Okay, well, I did mention before that uh, we do get a number of complaints that come to the board from other uh, practitioners right. about practitioners. So um, there's a lot you can do, the members can do, in terms of helping us maintain the integrity of the tax profession mm. um, by letting us know if they become aware of either somebody they think has done the wrong thing um, or somebody who's providing services whilst they're unregistered. Now, in particular, I suppose, if, if a practitioner thinks that somebody else is doing the wrong thing, in essence, what they're doing is, is they're judging the behaviour themselves, they're saying to themselves, well, look, in the context of what I know, based on my experience, based on my professionalism, what I'm seeing here doesn't cut it. Mm, um, yep. So they're making their own judgment about whether or not the, pra the other practitioner has been reasonable in the way that they've understood the client's circumstances, in the way they've applied the law, whether they've been honest and acted with integrity. So if, if the other practitioner feels that that is the case, then we do encourage them to notify the board, to give us details. They're probably going to need to get their client's permission to do so. Oh, right. um, but you know, bear in mind, as I said before, we are we the board are practitioners judging the practitioner, and if one practitioner who is the new practitioner to that client feels there's a problem, then in all probability that we would we would you know come to the same conclusion. Yeah, 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 yeah. So well, it's it's it's, a, it's all a good thing to because you want you want clients to keep coming back. You want clients to well, trust the the practitioner. That's right. Sector. It's all about it's all about creating trust and understanding and yep. and uh, and the fact that clients can expect to receive a competent service from mm. whoever they go to, regardless of whoever they go to. That's right, exactly. And yeah. unfortunately, I mean, we do have some people out there uh, who do market their services in a way which is not entirely uh, professional. I'll say. Yep. Um, you know, like. For example, there are people out there that say, "Come to us. We'll amend your prior return because uh, the uh, you know the previous practitioner won't have claimed everything you're entitled to." <laughs> well, you know that's not that's not necessarily the case, and sometimes the practitioner advertising those services may well then uh, be fabricating claims and getting additional refunds. Yeah, so yeah. Well, that's that's not a good model from short, our perspective. Short-term gain, but it doesn't help the uh, industry, industry as a whole. Correct. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
Okay, that's all very interesting. Um, thank you very much, Ian. That's uh, cleared up a lot of things and it's uh, certainly uh, answered a lot of my questions and I, I assume the listeners out there will have a lot of, uh, of their questions answered too. No problem. Thanks, thank Steve. Okay, so that was the, uh, the chair of the TPB, Mr Ian Taylor, telling us all about how it works. Um, please join us again next time.